Awesome. Thanks for joining us this morning at Genesis Community Church. And my name's Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and it is a joy to be with you. For a big part of the end of last year into this year, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we went through that and finished it up. We had Easter, celebrated baptisms for Easter, which was an awesome way to end if you were there to uh, see it and hear those testimonies. It's just, it's just awesome. And we're starting a new series, which will go for, I think, I had it at 20, I think it's 21 Sundays now, of the book of Exodus. Now, why the book of Exodus? Uh, just wanted to maybe help set that up before we dive right in. Why the book of Exodus? Well, if you're familiar with how the Bible is constructed, it's the second book of the Old Testament. There's the five books of Moses is what they call it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Exodus is that second one. So you guys, before I was here, you went through Genesis. Uh, so I didn't want to do Genesis again, um, as fun as that would be. Didn't want to do Genesis again. And then we had been heavily New Testament in 2020, uh, where we did Galatians, James, and the Sermon on the Mount with Jonah crammed in there for four Sundays. And so it was like, well, let's go back to the Old Testament and let's look. So we're kind of building the Old Testament forward. So we do Genesis, then we do Exodus. Uh, but also you see parallels between how Jesus was, even in the Sermon on the Mount, the retelling of the law, the expansion of the law. Exodus gives us the law and God's salvation of his people. And so you, there are bridges between the work of Jesus in saving us and the work of God in redeeming Israel, bringing them out and God keeping his promises. And so we're going to go through Exodus now, kind of in through the summer, uh, as a way to see his saving hand and that constant plan that he has of bringing people to himself. And when he makes a promise, he keeps that promise, even when I mean, hundreds of years go by. Hundreds. One thing that uh, we might think that we're pretty good at, but honestly, most of us would get a failing grade. These two, two concepts related together. Uh, patience and endurance. We're rather impatient, and we don't last long. And so, um, patience and endurance are kind of like, our, there are things. Uh, because we're so quick to go, I'm over this. I'm over this. And it can be whatever, right? It can be... Uh, your kids nagging. I'm over this. It's been five minutes and I'm just done. I'm tired of the way you're talking. Uh, it can be um, taking a medication. I'm tired of taking this. I don't want to take it anymore, right? Like you get a bottle of antibiotics and they're like, take the whole bottle, but you stop taking it after you feel better. You're like, I feel better. Why do I need to keep going? What does the doctor know? It can be in a job. Perhaps you have a profession and you just find yourself frustrated with it. And it's been all of six months. And you're not sure what to do with that anymore. The place where you live. You go, I'm just sick of living here. The church you're a part of. Right? The church you're a part of. Or you go, I'm just so tired of this church. And I'm tired of these people. And I want to freshen it up and be in a place that's way more exciting uh, so, like, it's time. Patience, endurance, lasting through things and seeing God as faithful through them is something that is really difficult for us. 
But now think about this. Like, like, imagine that you learn a skill or you have a talent and you're eager to use that skill or that talent, but you're actually not going to do that for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We, we would call that bad stewardship. We would say, you're a bad steward. If you, if, if you have something and you're not using it, then you're being a bad steward. Immediate use. But what you're going to see in the book of Exodus and even this morning is that God's timeline is far different from ours. His patience, far different. The amount of time that the nation of Israel will go on waiting for their deliverance, rather significant. We're talking from Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Exodus 1 to Exodus 3, 80 years. 80 years. Most of us go, I don't wait for anything for 80 years. I don't even wait 80 days. I might get 80 minutes. 80 years of life not going the way you expected it. 80 years of sitting on these promises that God has given you. <clears throat> but on top of that, it was 400. <laughs> so we're just brought into 80 of them. We're brought into the back end. Centuries of waiting. You have these promises and you're just living your life. You're living your life waiting for God to do the thing that he's going to do. He said he was going to do. Patience and endurance. So as we start the book of Exodus, the book is certainly about many things. It's a book about plagues. You're going to get like four Sundays of plagues, so just be ready. It's a book about the law and the Ten Commandments. That's probably for us, along with the Red Sea crossing, like that moment is probably the one we're the most familiar with in the book of Exodus. You know, if you know Charlton Heston, then you just know that's, that's what you get. It's a book about the tabernacle and the way Israel is to worship. Uh, it's a book about God delivering Israel and preserving them for himself. But, but really, Exodus is about God keeping his promises to his people. And the work that he does to keep those promises all the way to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, if you were in our reading plan just yesterday, if you're doing kind of Monday through Saturday like I am, you read the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, four chapters. And you read in the book of Ruth how the Lord used Ruth and her confidence in her mother-in-law. The widow of Ruth, her confidence in her mother-in-law, that God uses that to preserve the lineage that gets us to David, that gets us to Jesus. God's always doing this work. So <clears throat> Exodus, for the first roughly 20 chapters, is narrative. And then we get into the back end, and it's going to be a lot of law with a little narrative thrown in. We're going to spend the bulk of our time together in the narrative portion. We'll go through chapters 1 and 2 today. You ready for that? Like, that's like, 1 and 2. It's a long bit of Exodus. But first, I'm going to give you even more than that, because we're going to go into Genesis and go, just how did we get here? So this is like, right? We're going to go real quick through how did we get to where we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. So we're going to go to Genesis we're going to remember this. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to a man named Abram. And that promise is that he is going to 
make this man, Abram, a nation. And that nation is going to grow and be large. And through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abram's actually called out of a pagan, non, non-monotheistic, non-Yahweh-worshipping family. He doesn't worship the true God. He's called out of his father Terah's pagan worship and goes into a new place. In Genesis 15, God confirms his word to Abraham. He says, the Lord said to Abraham, we read this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. That's actually as he's giving his covenant to Abraham, where God is saying, I will fulfill my promises. He's going, you're going to die at a good old age, but your people are going to be in a nation not theirs for 400 years, but I will bring them out. That's Genesis 15. That's Genesis 15. That's like 2000-ish B.C. Okay? So for years, Abraham does not have anything that he has been promised. He's promised a son. He doesn't have that son. He goes through other means to try and get a son that God had promised. And in Genesis 21, God keeps his promise, and he has this son named Isaac. In Genesis 25, Isaac has two sons. One is named Jacob, Jacob the crafty guy, and Esau. God, actually, Jacob takes his brother's birthright through a funny story about bad eyesight and soup. That's what happens there. Gets his brother's birthright. And so now, right, the older shall serve the younger kind of language. Jacob is now established. And he has these sons. Perhaps you've heard the names of these sons. But Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. You don't know about Benjamin until later in Genesis, but Benjamin's there too. So he has these sons. Maybe you've heard of them because... We would call those sons, right, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's actually not a tribe of Joseph. There's two half-tribes, so you don't, you don't find the tribe of Joseph, really. Uh, you find Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, but we find these tribes. And then Levi doesn't get an allotment in the land because they're you know, kind of servants of the nation, and so they get allotments throughout the land. But that's where we get these 12 tribes. Now, the back end of Genesis, kind of 37 through 50, followed Joseph who was the youngest brother as you get introduced to him. But then as we get to the end of Genesis, we realize he's now not the youngest. He's like the penultimate youngest. His brothers are mad because Joseph's having these dreams about how his brothers are going to fall down before him. And of course, if any younger brother says, hey, you're going to fall down before me, he'd be like, get out. That's not what happens. Younger brothers are younger brothers for a reason. And older brothers are older brothers for a reason. And so they have such hatred toward Joseph that what they end up doing is try to get him killed. But they feel bad. They go, well, maybe we shouldn't get him killed. Maybe we should just make it look like he got killed. What do they end up doing is they actually end up selling the brother into slavery and then go and tell dad that he died. Genesis 37, 28 reads like this. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of a pit where they put him, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to where? 
Egypt. Right, so Genesis 37, we're starting to move toward the place that God had said prior in Genesis 15 that they were going to be. Well, God blesses Joseph in Egypt. And, you know, if you know Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat, or you've seen the movie Joseph, or you know, he had a, right? Dad liked Joseph. He had a nice suit, nice coat on. But God blesses Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph is given essentially second in command status to Pharaoh. He's interpreting dreams. He's allowing the nation of Egypt to thrive when a famine is about to come. And so there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so Joseph is able to understand that and tells Pharaoh what to do. And they work this whole plan. So the nation is established. But then through that, dad, Jacob, is hearing about how Egypt has food. And he's sending his sons to go get that food. And so there's a reunification through a couple of attempts of, you know, go bring back your brother, don't bring back, put in prison. There's this reunification of Joseph with his brothers. There's actually this moment where he can't bear it anymore emotionally, and he's just like, I'm, I am Joseph. I'm Joseph. And all the family now goes to Egypt with all of their families. And Pharaoh's going to take care of them, because, right, I mean, this is how it works. If somebody I know is helping me succeed, well, I'm going to take care of them. And so Pharaoh takes care of Joseph's family, his brothers, his father, because Joseph's taking care of Pharaoh. He's preserved the nation through famine. So they're given a place to be and to grow. And we end Genesis with the death of some of this family. And we begin Exodus with that now statement. So that's how we get there. Then Exodus, if you read in the first six verses, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now listen, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, remember? He was left there. He, was right, he rose to power there. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. So now we're left with the next phase of what's going to happen, right? Genesis kind of ends at Exodus 1-6. That, that story finishes, and we get to 1-7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So not only is this nation in the land of Egypt, and they are now growing, but listen to the language of 1-7 and compare it to the first chapter of Genesis. What does God say to Adam and Eve to do but this? God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, the sea, over the birds, the heavens, over everything that moves on the earth. So what we have in Exodus 1, linguistically, is a little connection to Genesis 1 to say, even after the nation died out, the people are being fruitful and they're multiplying in the land. However, they're multiplying in a land that isn't the land that God had promised. Genesis 12, he's promised a different land. They're not supposed to be multiplying and growing in Egypt, but they're being faithful in that sense to what God has asked his people to do which is multiply and fill the earth, not just so that the earth is filled with people, but so that the earth is filled with his image. 
right? That's what we're doing. It's not just like, hey, make more people so that there's more people all around. But so that there are worshipers and image bearers of him at every corner of the earth. But Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh's not a guy who's going to be too fond of a foreign people exploding in population growth. I mean, and you can even just think about this from a how do you handle it perspective. These people need food, supplies, right? Like they, they, you, have to, you have to somehow manage it. And if you have this population of non-Egyptians flourishing, well, that's going to be a problem for the Egyptians. So we now are being met in the story with our anti-God. Because this is really a battle between the forces of this world that aren't God and the true God. And so Pharaoh shows up on the scene in verse 8. Now there arose over Egypt a new king who did not know Joseph. Well, now we see a problem. The new guy, and remember, he doesn't owe anything. In a sense, there doesn't seem to be any covenant between these people, but we have now been introduced to a problem. There's a new ruler in town, and that ruler has a new problem. And that ruler's not overly concerned about how Joseph was treated back then. Joseph's dead. Everyone there is gone. New regime, new rules. And this is what you would see a new leader do, right? A new leader's flexing his muscles. And so he's going to try and handle the problem that he has, and he's going to try and do two things. He goes, well, since we have all these people, let's at least discourage them and meet our ends by forcing them to do labor for us. And then secondly, let's go ahead and keep them from growing by killing their males. Those are the two things that this Pharaoh is going to do. So let's exhaust them with labor, and let's ensure their population doesn't grow. So look, this is verses 9 through 22. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. There's just too much of them for us. So let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. It's not working. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with a hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all the work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and one Puat, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, so these two kind of stones, they had these two stones, they would sit there, not like a seat you'd have at a hospital or a bed. If it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, this is a crafty phrase, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're just too good at having babies. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now he's trying to just continue this thing. Now it's interesting, right, that they're given a command. This is when disobeying a law is right. We've talked about this before, is that, that, that you always have a higher law. And so if a lower law doesn't conflict with the higher law, right, like a speed limit. I know, gasp. But like, when the lower law doesn't conflict with the higher law, there's no convictional reason to not obey the lower law, the lower authority. But when the lower authority asks you to do something in contrast or in opposition to the higher authority, our Lord's law, then you obey the higher authority. So when the lower authority, Pharaoh, says, kill the males, the Hebrew midwives feared God. So what are they going to do? We're not going to kill the males. They're made in God's image. We're not going to kill children. Because there's a higher law. There's a higher authority. And that actually works for our lives even now. There's always going to be lower authorities that are saying things. If those lower authorities say things that aren't in contrast to what is revealed in Scripture, you have no reason not to obey the lower authorities. But if they do say something that is in contrast to the higher authority, then you disobey. And that's what they did. And God blessed them for it and gave them families. So we just can't seem to stop the Israelites from having children and growing in a land that is not theirs which increases the problem for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's already said, let's work them really hard. Because if you're exhausted, having children isn't at the top of your priority list. He's like, I'm just so tired. So let's exhaust them. Let's discourage them. Let's enslave them. That's going to change how they view things. And just to be sure, let's kill their males. Neither plan's working. Neither plan is working. The Hebrew midwives, the valor of these women is just staggering. It really is. In fact, if you look at Exodus 1 and 2, the heroes of Exodus 1 and 2 are the women of the story. The Hebrew midwives preserve the males. As you get into chapter 2, you have Moses' mom, Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister. They're the ones who are making the good decisions here. They're the ones who are responding in faith. They're the ones who are listening to what God has revealed and responding to it. In one and two, the, the heroes of these stories are the women who are listening. Even Pharaoh's daughter, who isn't of the people of Israel, 
who doesn't know God's law, which doesn't exist yet, but doesn't know his ways, his, his standards, his expectation, his promise. God is a God of life. He gives life. He preserves life. He gives new life through his son Jesus to us. So we end chapter 1 with this tension that there's a desire to squash God's people, but at the same time, there is faithfulness everywhere. Faithful to the promise, they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, but they're not in their land. Chapter 2. A child is born. This is like the story within the broader story of what's going on in 1 and 2. We first see God's provision. Now a man from the house of Levi, remember the Levites were the priests, went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is the mom. There's no death. When she could hide him no longer, kids get bigger and noisier. When you can hide the child no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Notice in just write Genesis 6.14, the ark uses pitch as well. So when, God is, when Noah is building his ark, there's pitch as a part of this. And what's going to happen is they're building this little, little tiny ark to put a baby in that's going to redeem a people. So it's kind of a cool little illusion that you have there to God preserving people in boats. So Moses goes in. I don't know his name yet. Sorry. Spoiler alert. This is Moses. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now this is not going to be a rushing river. And his, that's the child's sister, could very well be Miriam, uh, who we see later in Exodus. But the child's sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So she's watching, right? She's kind of moving slowly as the the basket goes down the Nile. She's slowly watching this child there. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. No plumbing. So you go to the running water. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Makes a lot of sense. Children cry. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister. Look at this. I mean, you're talking about the sister of Moses, this young daughter, who's gone up against Pharaoh's daughter, right? So... Daughter of a slave woman going up against daughter of the king of Egypt. And she's about to say, I have an idea. I have an idea. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? It's a Hebrew baby. We have Hebrew moms. Why don't we just go ahead and preserve this child? Would you like that? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So the girl went and called the child's mother. (laughs) So now Moses' mom is getting to continue to take care of her child for this season. And Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. 
she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. There's a little bit of like, how did this work? What did the word Moses come from? But just they have that idea, the idea of drawing out, right? There's a root in there that's drawing out. And so we'll call him Moses or Moshe is what it is. So a child whom Pharaoh wanted dead, listen to this, a child Pharaoh wanted dead is now being raised in his household by his daughter. That's what's now going on. So Pharaoh's adopted grandson is a Hebrew, and he's going to grow up in Pharaoh's household. Joke's on you, Pharaoh. You're not going to win this battle, right? There is already an agent in the house. You just don't know it yet. And now we know who the child is. The child is Moses. Now, this is where we do a big time jump. But think of what's gone on just to this point. People get there. They're in the land. Every, all the ancestors die. They've multiplied in the land. Pharaoh's trying to squash it. It is not working. And then we zoom into one specific story. This one child preserved and brought into Pharaoh's household. Moses clearly knows his identity because we're introduced to him in verse 11, 40 years later. We know it's 40 years later because Acts 7.23 in Stephen's speech will say, and then when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his people. So Stephen's giving a speech telling the history of Israel. And so Exodus writes it as one day when Moses had grown up, in Exodus 2.11, but that's a 40-year span. So from birth to 40, we have zoomed in one verse 40 years ahead. So hold on just a second. Do you wait 40 years for anything? For anything? I mean, I mean how many you can, can even look back and go, I've been holding on to that promise for 40 years. <clears throat> I've been waiting on that thing for 40 years. Some of you go, if I go back 40 years, I'm not in existence, so no. So for those who can think back 40 years, who God is blessed with age and wisdom, what are you holding on to from 40 years ago? I'm guessing the list, if it exists, is rather small. Because quite honestly, you can't hold on to that many things. Like here are the 75 things I've been waiting for for 40 years. No, it's probably like two things. You know, and if you're praying for the salvation of family members who are still not in the faith, it could be that. <clears throat> and it's also like the, the older you get, the more you just pray, come Lord Jesus. And come on, man, get here. Other than that, probably a pretty small list. So we're now 40 years into the future. That's 40 more years of slavery. That's 40 more years of oppression. That's 40 more years of pain. That's 40 more years of struggle. That's 40 more years of knowing that sometime in the past that you've likely forgotten, God gave a promise to a man you've never met named Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that whole family. He gave this promise, but you're sitting in a land that is not that land, and you're being oppressed by people who are not your people. So, that's where we are now. But Moses hasn't forgotten who he is. Verse 11, he'd grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He knows, he still has this identity and connection to his people, the Israelites. 
He looked this way and that, right, looking around, saw no one was looking. He struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand, buried him, killed him and buried him. When he went out the next day, two Hebrews were struggling, and he said to the man uh, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? But Moses isn't being accepted by his people yet. This person answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, well, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, which is east of Egypt. So now we're going east of the land of Egypt. We're having a good trek now for Midian because it's like on the other side of the Red Sea. And the land kind of goes on to the west side as well. But that's where we are now. So we've moved east of Egypt. East for you guys is that way. Me this way, you that way if you're looking at me. He fled. But can you imagine that? I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of the Israelite. You have this Israelite who grew up in Pharaoh's household who's coming in to be like, hey, let me tell you to stop fighting with one another. I'd be like, man, get out. You're living in Pharaoh's household. You don't have anything to worry about. You're not a ruler over me. You're not a leader over me. You're not even one of us. You're his. Can you, I mean, you can, you can feel the disdain that might be there. You haven't struggled like I've struggled. You haven't missed a meal. You're not going to lead me. And don't tell me not to fight this guy. We're going to fight. But now he's afraid. And so where does he go? He flees to Midian. He flees away from his people. He's fearful for his life. He doesn't want Pharaoh to kill him. His own people don't accept him. So now he's in a new land. And this is where he meets his wife. Verse 16, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So the daughters were drawing water, but some other people came and they tried to push them out. Moses said, no, right? You can feel in Moses this like he wants to be a protector. He's going after the Egyptian, hurting the Hebrew He's trying to keep the Hebrews from fighting. He sees these shepherds taking, uh, taking advantage of this priest of Midian, right? Jethro. He has two names we're going to get introduced to, but Jethro's daughters. And so he wants to go protect them, right? He's a protector. He's a fighter. This is what he feels like in his bones. I am this guy. It's funny because in chapter 3, he's like, maybe I'm not that guy, right? Like he's, He kind of gets, you know, gets over that feeling once it becomes real. When they came home, their father, Ruel, right? Ruel is one of, uh, another name. We hear him as Ruel and Jethro. He said, how is it that you have come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian. They don't know he's a Hebrew. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. He said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Why have you left this man? <laughs> Call him that he may eat bread. I mean, think about it, dads. If anybody took care of your daughters, protected them, well, <laughs> You know, let me shake your hand, right? Like, that's, that's what he's doing. Let me shake his hand. But it's a little more than that, too. Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Let me shake your hand and give you a wife. That second part's probably not the part many of you dads would do. But for these guys, that's what they did. So Moses now is married to Zipporah, who's a Midianite. She's not a Hebrew. Isn't it interesting that, that 
Moses is finding more camaraderie and companionship amongst people who aren't his. That he, he's been accepted by the Midianites and not by the Israelites. Certainly not by the Egyptians. I, I just, as a, as a pastor, like, this is, this is really what I would long the church to always be for people. I know you don't fit in anywhere else, but come over here. And I know that you feel like an outsider. I know your family doesn't care for you. I know you feel weird at your job. You know, the one place where you might feel at home is here. That's, that's my longing, right? Moses even had to be that guy. He had, to, he had to go to Midian to find people who would be glad to see him. To find people who would support him. Who would love him. Who would care for him. Moses has these redeeming qualities. They have this son name is Gershom, because he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gar is sojourner, Gershom. Moses is protecting. He protects his own people. He wants to protect Jethro's daughters. He gets a wife out of it. But he also knows this isn't his home. These aren't his people, in the sense of what God has promised. He's still wandering Still looking. But then look at the end of chapter 2. 23, 24, and 25. During those many days, and just like the gap between chapter 1 and 2, or 2, 10, and 11, there's 40 years. Between 2 and 3, we're going to have another gap of 40 years. And so during those many days, and again we're talking decades the king of Egypt died. So now we're on another king, another Pharaoh. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, I love this, and God knew. So where are we left in chapter 2? We've been introduced to Moses. But we also see that God hears the cry of Israel. And God what? Verse 24. God remembers. God remembers his promises. You know who didn't know who these people were? Pharaoh. We get that in chapter 1. There arose over Egypt a king who did not know Joseph. We get to the end of chapter 2. We fast forward some 80 years. God heard. God remembered. God knew. He knows his people. He knows his nation. He remembers his promise. 80 years. We talked about 40 years. Waiting for 40 years. Who has some stuff on the list they've been waiting for for 80 years? And let's not forget that God promised to Abraham in chapter 15. He spoke that this is going to be 400 years. So we're only getting a snapshot of what was hundreds of years of waiting for the thing God said he was going to do. So 
So think with me for a moment with this idea. That God never forgets his promise. And not only that, but he's active in keeping them. Even when you think he might be silent. God's not promising something new. All he's doing is remembering the promises he's made. And remember doesn't mean he's forgotten it. That's language for us to kind of grab onto. Ah, yes, you know, I, I remember. In that moment, he's about to act. But he's acting based on, based on his promises. That's what he's doing. But now, let's think back on chapters 1 and 2 and the 40 to 80 years that have passed in that amount of time. The growth of the people of the land. Who is responsible for that? That was God. The growth of the people in the land was God. The faithfulness of the midwives. Who was that? That was God. The birth and protection of Moses. That was God. In fact, even Moses fleeing into Midian will get introduced in chapter 3 to him working for his father-in-law at 80 years old. And that's when God reveals himself on the west side of Midian. In the burning bush. That Moses has that encounter at 80. Your, your memory is probably short. We're not long to hold on to promises or remember promises or recall promises. God's memory is long. His activity is eternal. He is totally and always faithful. And I don't think we think about this enough, but that there are things going on in life even right now that we don't know will have significance in 40 or in 80 years. That there is work being done even right now that you might not even think about. That you had forgotten. I mean, what Israelite, 40 years later when Moses is meeting his people, are sitting around the campfire telling the story of Moses being put in a basket. Like, that story's probably not floating around Israel. They're clearly aware that he's a Hebrew, but they're not sitting around going, oh yeah, you know, this is all a part of God's, God's big plan. As far as they probably saw it, It was just another part of their existence. But in the scheme of what God is working out to save people, it carried eternal significance. What might God be doing even right now to bring someone else to faith in Jesus? Perhaps we've just not considered how active he is. Because our days are long and they just get tiring. I mean, imagine 40 years, 365 days times 40. It's a lot of sitting. It's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of getting up. It's a lot of building bricks. Was God silent? No. And we know God's not silent because even the Apostle Paul, a man who was following the way of Judaism, the way who was, who was, who was 
ready to kill Christians all these years later. We're talking roughly 1,500 years in the future. The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That Jesus is the fulfillment of a plan that God was working even in Exodus. But even before Exodus, he was working even in Genesis 12. And even before Genesis 12, when he says to Eve that the serpent was going to strike her heel, but you will crush his head. I mean, talk about consistent. God is like just this unstoppable force. And he is moving in a direction. And that direction ends in a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies, with all the nations worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we get. That's where he's moving. He does not forget. But think about all of the generations that rise up and die and 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 rise up and die. You could keep going with this. Wouldn't it be easy to think that God forgets? Where is he? I need my miracle, God. I need my miracle. He's like, is is your salvation not enough? This is why we have to gather. This is why we have to be in the scriptures. This is why we have to be connected to other brothers and sisters. Because if not, we drift. We forget. And so I'll be on Mondays talking with my D group, and we're going through, we'll talk through the past week, finishing up Judges, getting into Ruth. And there are still times where I'm like, I don't think I've ever read that passage of the Bible before in my life. Somebody was telling, hey, you know this Bible story where this happens and that happens? I was like, I don't doubt that you're telling the truth, but I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. Why? Because I don't remember. I don't remember. That's why I need you, and you need one another, and we need each other to point ourselves to what is true and what is lasting and what gives enduring hope. Otherwise, what happens? We're sitting around going, I don't think God even cares. I don't think he's interested. I don't even know if he's real. But don't give up. Don't reject faithfulness. Don't get bored with what seems like mundane obedience because God is there in those moments and he's working out great things to fulfill his plan. 